Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. This is Mariana, and I'm here with my co-host, Jonah. What's new, Jonah? Um, nothing much since we last recorded. Although I had ringworm for 15 months and it just went away, which is pretty gross. <laughs> but it relates to what we're talking about today. And that's fungus, fungi. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fungi. Um, anyways, what's new with you before we get into fungi? Um, not much. No infections to report, gladly. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm still, I am still looking for more field work. So, you know, that's one of the struggles of being a field, a wildlife technician. Um, you know, just going from, uh, project to project and having some unemployment time in between, cause it's hard to get a steady, steady job. But anyway, um, that's okay. No complaints. Um, except. I have no money, but <laughs> that's okay. I'm employed okay. and I still have no money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, um, nothing else new. Okay. Well, should we talk chytrid? Yes, let's talk chytrid. Very, very serious issue. So we're going to be talking about this. Um, these two species of fungi specifically that have had severe impact on amphibian populations in the past few decades. Um, and these two species are, uh, I'm going to butcher this Latin, these Latin names, Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis and Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans. Those are the two um, chytrid species that we're going to be talking about today. And just to keep it simple, um, the dendrobatitis, dendrobatitis <laughs> species, sure. we're just going to call that BD, and the salamandrivorans, yeah. we're going to call BS, for sure. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And like we said, these have been causing significant global declines of frogs and salamanders specifically um, over the past few decades, and we'll get into that shortly. Yeah, so a mycologist from Imperial College London, Matt Fisher, says it is the worst pathogen in the history of the world, as far as we can tell, in terms of its impact on biodiversity. So that sounds really serious. Yeah. Um, and it is it is really serious, um, especially in this day and age when wildlife amphibians especially are faced with multiple stressors. Um, so the last thing they need is something like this. Um, which has decimated some populations. Um, so yeah, uh, Jonah, I'll let you tell us more about BD and BS. Um, I feel like you've got a better handle on this than I do. Because <laughs> I have experience with fungi. Um, so these these two species, um, they're often referred to as chytrid. Um, just even though that is actually um, an entire phylum of fungi, um, you know, so chytrid could be any fungus species in the phylum. Uh, Chytridiomycota, which is a group of roughly a thousand fungi species, and they live exclusively in water or in mo- moist environments. Um, and the majority of these species feed on dead and rotting organic material. So these these ones that do this are called uh, saprobes. And then the rest of the species are parasites that actually live on plants and invertebrates and, and feed on them in some way. Um, there's only one other. So we're talking about BD and BS because they're affecting amphibians. Um, but there's one other really rare species of, of fungus. Um, I don't think it's a, a type of chytrid fungus, but it's known to infect the skin and gills of freshwater fish. And that's been around since the 1920s, um, but BD and BS are the only other chytrid fungus known to infect vertebrates, um, because like I said, all these other species that are parasites infect plants and invertebrates. So they're pretty unique, um, and they've only been 
you know, within our lifetime have they been discovered and described. Um, so in, in 19, well, it was actually in 1997 um, at the National Zoo, there were some, which is in Washington, D.C., there were some poison dart frogs of a couple different species, I believe, and some tree frogs that died. And it was from like an unknown cause. And after studying like these lesions on their skin, um, they actually discovered what it, we now know as BD. Um, but that was the first time it had ever been studied and described. And so that was it's the first description of it was published in 1999. And at that time, it became known as the only species of chytrid to infect vertebrates, um, specifically amphibians. It's, it's not known to affect other um, groups of vertebrates currently that we know of. Um, and so, you know, after it was discovered, it was intensively studied because it sort of became clear that this was what was causing a lot of mass die-offs of amphibians, especially frogs worldwide that have been observed you know, since the, the 1970s. Um, and then, so it, this is, you know, as we're going to be talking about BD and to a lesser extent BS because it's, it's a newer species that we don't know a lot about, um, but, but there's so much complexity revolving around these in their ecology and um so we're going to be making some generalizations um especially because bd acts differently or it rather bd affects different species differently and affects species in mm -hmm. different environments differently and so you know wherever it occurs in the world which by the way it occurs Currently, it occurs worldwide wherever there's amphibians. Um, yeah, it it sort of behaves differently and has a, a different type of impact. So, in Europe, especially northern Europe, where you know it's colder, um, BD occurred in sort of a coexistent state until 2010, um, which basically means that the species there that had BD weren't dying from it. Um, there were no, you know, mass mortalities um, until in 2010, um, there was an endangered population of fire salamanders in the south of the Netherlands. And all of a sudden it was observed that their population was experiencing a sharp decline. And then so they were declining so quickly that by 2013, only 4% of the population remained. Um, wow. And so, you know, the initial idea was, oh, this is BD. But when they studied the um, the infection that these salamanders had, they, it couldn't be attributed to BD or any other viral or bacterial pathogens. Um, so before it was too late, they, you know, they removed 40 salamanders from the wild to begin bringing them in captivity. Um, but... It wasn't for a few years um, until they, you know, discovered this. This was actually a new chytrid species, and they discovered this from um, studying the like these lesions on some of the dead salamanders. So it was this new chytrid species, which is is BS. And if you remember, its species name was Salamandrivorans, and that's because it's known to affect salamanders. Um, and that's what was happening here. So since then, um, you know, it's now this is this, a second species of chytrid fungus that is known to only infect amphibians, specifically salamanders. And since then, it's been implicated in mass salamander population declines um, across Europe. So not a very good outlook. No. Um, and... I'm actually personally impressed by um, how quickly we've learned so much about this, this fungus. Um, you know, it's within the same century um, that we've really been pushing up the, the research on this. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible how much research has gone into this. Um, 
But anyway, so let's talk transmission. Um, oh, and I guess we should, I guess we should also say that, um, you know, the infection of both of these species, you know, even though they're different species of fungi, uh, in, infecting different species of amphibians, the disease that results from an infection of these fungi is called chytridiomycosis. And like I said before, it's, it's unique to amphibians. And that's probably because they have this porous skin um, that is for you know regulating moisture and stuff. And we'll get a little more into that shortly. But um, that's probably what makes them susceptible because these fungi spores are able to infiltrate the porous skin of, of frogs and salamanders. So how is the chytrid transmitted? So the spores of the fungi, um, or fungi, do you say fungi or fungi? <laughs> uh, fungi, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay. <clears throat> the spores of the fungi are produced asexually and they're picked up in the water or from direct contact between individuals. Now the BD is very temperature dependent um, for to survive and optimal growth occurs between 17 and 25 degrees Celsius. So that's 63 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, below these temperatures, the growth of BD is slowed and above these temperatures, above 28 Celsius um, or 82 Fahrenheit, um, it doesn't grow at all. So growth ceases. And that's for BD, which of course we know more about. The optimal temp for BS um, is a little bit different. Uh, it's between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius, so 50 to 59 Fahrenheit, and higher than 77 Fahrenheit or 25 Celsius is lethal to BS. Um, that's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so as for where the fungi lives and how it's, um, and what the vectors are, um, it's suggested that waterfowl and crayfish would be non-amphibian vectors. Um, the BD can survive on the foot scales of waterfowl, and for crayfish, it can survive in the digestive tracts. Um, so these are vectors, which means the fungus doesn't infect them. It doesn't um, cause them any damage or disease, um, but it, it's, it can be spread by them. So like Mariana said, um, the spores of the fungi can be transmitted in water or through direct contact. And specifically for BS, since research has been only recently started on them in the past few years since it was discovered, um, there was this experiment actually that used Japanese fire lily newts. And they found that a contact period of just eight hours between an infected individual and a naive or a non-infected individual was sufficient for the fungus to be transmitted. So eight hours seems like, a, like, seems like a long time, but, you know, these animals, first of all, they're especially like newts, they're very slow moving and, and they have a small area that they live in. So you can imagine an infected newt is in this little pool or something and then other ones come in and are hanging out. Like they're, it's not like they're just going to pop in and pop out like a, a bird or something. Um, mm -hmm. These animals are are going to be in close proximity to each other, and so basically they're almost guaranteed to be infected if they're hanging out in an area where um, infected individuals are. And I I didn't write it down, but I remember reading that. Another experiment found that BS can persist in the soil for 24 hours after an infected individual, you know, crawls over a certain patch of soil. So especially for mm -hmm. these um, terrestrial salamanders like the fire salamander, where they might be doing sort of a mass migration to a breeding pool like a lot of salamanders in the United States do. You can just imagine it's just they're just dragging their infected bodies all over. Yeah, so it's more than just the biology that contributes to the transmission of the fungus. It's also the ecology of the animals it affects. 
Um, that, that's what makes it so transmissible. Um, so now we're going to get kind of gross because the <laughs> what the fungus or what the fungi do to the amphibians is like gives me the heebie-jeebies, especially as yeah. I was like imagining my ringworm doing this in my skin. Um, it's also like the papers about this are so detailed with physiology, like it's impossible to understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, so without, we're not going to go into the nitty gritty physiology of it, but um, you know, it seems that BD and presumably BS, because we don't know yet, um, it seems that they're attracted to the mucus of amphibian skin, which is, and there's all this, you know, detailed cellular stuff um, that happens there, but that seems to be why they, you know, why spores are attracted to amphibians. Um, so even though the mucus of amphibian skin attracts the spores, it also at the same time acts as a defense against infection. Um, and I'll touch more about that, touch more on that in a minute, but you know, the mucus and stuff in the mucus of the amphibian skin can actually, in some cases, cause up to a 20-fold reduction in viable spores following exposure to the spores. So it's it's kind of weird because it's attracting the spores, but it's also helping to fight the spores. Mm-hmm. Um, and then upon colonizing, which is a really gross word, I think, for spores, <laughs> when the spores colonize the the amphibian skin or epidermis, they insist, which means that they absorb their little flagellum, which is like a tail that they use for swimming in in the water. They absorb it, and then they start to develop a a harder cell wall. And that's sort of when they come, um, that's when they like start to become an actual fungus rather than just a, a spore. Um, and then they germinate once they're attached to the skin, which means that they grow this like tube or root that like roots them into the skin. And there's these like microscopic photos of this and it's just <sighs> so gross. Um, but these, these tubes, um, which are like roots, they grow a sporangium on the end of them, which is basically like a a receptacle that asexually produces the spores. So just recap, spores are attracted to the skin, they attach to the skin, they lose their tail, they grow roots, they grow a sporangium, and then they can start producing spores. And the paper that um, that I got this from, which is by um, Royage, I think that's how you say his name, Royage et al. 2015, was super detailed. Um, but this quote from it was pretty gross and horrible. And he said, subsequently, <laughs> the fungus proliferates intracellularly. Intracellularly. Um, which basically means they're getting busy asexually. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, these, this, this fungus and the spores that are being produced, they, they develop like this into like thick walled cysts in like concentrated areas on the host skin, um, which is what ultimately kills them. But it's, you know, it becomes visible because it's not like just one spore is doing this. It's a, it's many spores are doing this to the amphibian skin. And then, so these spores that are produced through um, the sporangium, they are transported. You know, so this is all happening inside or in between the cells of the skin. Um, the spores that are produced, then they start heading towards the surface of the skin, and then they're released into the environment. So that's how that's when transmission occurs because then these spores leave the skin of an infected individual and they're out there in the environment. Um, And I should also note that most of what we know about, well, actually, 
not most. Pretty much all of what we know about BD and BS is from when they're like living on an amphibian or infecting the amphibian. There's not really anything known about free living uh, fungi just, you know, outside of their house, out in the environment, because they're basically impossible to detect. Um, and in a culture, which basically means in a controlled lab setting, in a Petri dish, this whole lifestyle, lifestyle, gross, gross <laughs> lifestyle, this whole life cycle <laughs> takes about um, four or five days when the temperature is about 22 degrees Celsius or 72 Fahrenheit. So as we know, or in case you're not totally aware, amphibians uh, exchange a lot of air through their skin. So as as Jonah uh, mentioned earlier, their skin is very porous and their skin is extremely important to their survival. They're very sensitive. They have very sensitive skin. In addition to being a sensory organ, uh, the skin helps to regulate water, pressure, electrolytes, and of course, air and other gases. So they basically, they breathe through their skin. And in fact, m- many amphibians, some amphibians don't even have lungs. So we should also note that BD can infect larval stage frogs, so the tadpoles. Um, we hear about it mostly in adults, but it also affects the mouth parts of tadpoles, um, the keratin of the mouth parts in tadpoles. Uh, the it's not as it's not as fatal to tadpoles as it is it is to adults. Um, it doesn't physiologically kill them, uh, but it can result in some behavioral changes. And of course, it's an infection, so that's not good. Um, as for how it affects the skin, um, preventing all this proper regulation of water, electrolytes, and oxygen, the transport of ions are disrupted in the skin, and this can lead to several problems. And if you see an infected frog, um, it will look sickly to you, and it can even it can even lead to cardiac arrest. Um, and that's what's thought to be the proximate cause of death um, for these infected animals. Yeah. So, like I already said, this there's like so much more detail about how it's affecting them, mm-hmm. um, but we don't need to go into that, you know, that that much physiology, but. It's having significant impacts on their physiology that eventually causes them to die because they can't breathe and regulate these other things through their skin. Um, so, you know, they do have some innate immune responses, and these are also really complex, um, but they all basically involve a secretion uh, in the mucus of the skin of some kind of antimicrobial or antifungal compound. But just to give the easiest example to understand, at least for me to understand, um, was one of the secretions is this antifungal metabolite that's actually, this is really interesting, is created, this antifungal metabolite is created by this symbiotic bacteria that lives on the amphibian skin. So... For those of you that don't know, symbiotic means that um, it's living with or in or alongside the amphibians, and it's you know it's not causing them any harm. It's actually a mutually beneficial, basically. So these bacteria produce this antifungal stuff, and it tries to fight off the chytrid. Um, and actually, there was this one study by Harris et al. in two thousand nine that found that the, you know, when mountain yellow-legged frogs, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, um, a lot of chytrid s- studies have focused on this species. But in this study in 2009, um, they introduced some of this beneficial bacteria to the skin of mountain, ye- mountain yellow-legged frogs, and it actually helped you know, they introduced it to their skin before they experimentally exposed them to BD. And this bacteria actually helped to alleviate the symptoms of the fungus and actually prevented mortality. So this bacteria is really helpful, but not in all species. 
Uh, and like I said in the beginning, we're generalizing here because, you know, the different species respond differently differently to this these fungi species. Um, but for some, they're actually able to combat it. Unfortunately, it's the minority that are able to do that, though. Mm-hmm. So as far as other sort of innate immune responses um, in several species, such as the Cuban tree frog, oak toad, and burulong frogs, which is a fun word to say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> in, in several of these species, um, exposure to the maximum critical temperature for BD for more than 24 hours actually produced an acquired immunity that allowed the infected frogs to overcome the, fun- the fungus's um, resistance to their immune responses. Um, so that's, it's very specific. That's, that's a very specific sort of response. Um, but it's, it's good to know that several species can have that. Um, and as Jonah said, not all species respond to the infection the same and not all species respond to treatment the same. And we'll, we'll go over even more about treatments and other experiments, um, when we get there. There's three categories of how species react to exposure to the fungi. Um, They're probably oversimplified in reality, um, but they help in understanding how species, populations, or even individuals are affected by BD or BS. So, you know, the first response is that they're susceptible to chytridiomycosis. They're susceptible to the disease. So that means that you know, they get infected and everything that we described happens and then they they die or they're treated clinically, you know, with some of the, like being exposed to high temperatures or whatever and they survive. But, you know, without that treatment, they would have died, which means they're susceptible. And species that are susceptible, you know, generally, again, this is very general, but um, they tend to be species that live at higher elevations, you know, where it's within that optimal temperature range, sort of a cooler, um, but not too cold temperature. And species that live and breed in permanent water are more susceptible because, you know, the spores are traveling in the water. So if the frogs are spending a lot of time in the water, they're probably going to pick it up. Um, And one example are this neotropical toad genus Adelopis, which are the harlequin frogs. And they're actually probably the most threatened group of frogs. There's a hundred or a little more than a hundred species that have been described and 30 of them are almost certainly extinct from most likely from BD. Um, And 82 or roughly that of those species of the surviving species are either endangered or critically endangered. And this has a lot to do their susceptibility to the disease has to do with their ecology and where they live. So they're, they're basically living in um, along streams in the perfect climate condition for BD to spread. And that's what makes them very susceptible. Um, also in Central America, plethodonid salamanders, which are lungless salamanders, like Mariana said, they don't have lungs because they're exclusively breathing through their skin. They're also highly susceptible because they're either living in streams, you know, where the Adelopis toads are or they're living under like moist logs and things where there's enough moisture for the spores to travel through the soil as far as bs goes um non-asian salamanders are the most susceptible it's bs is known to exist in asian salamanders but they don't appear to succumb to the disease that's probably because bs originated in asia even though it's exact origins aren't known but you know it's it's a novel um fungus to you know european salamanders and that's why they're more susceptible to it second um reaction category that we have is tolerant species so this means that you know they're infected and it's a persistent infection but they don't get the disease so um you know, the fungus doesn't develop like I described and and have this negative effect on them. However, because they're carrying around the fungus, they can act as reservoirs 
And there's a couple species, especially in the United States, the American bullfrog, which is highly invasive, um, you know, outside of the eastern United States. Well, even in the eastern United States, it's prolific. Um, so the American bullfrog and the Pacific chorus frog are both examples of species that are tolerant to BD. And they're actually known as super shedders, which is another gross word, <laughs> because they have like really high pathogen loads they carry a lot of the fungus and a lot of spores and particularly in the case of the american bullfrog because they're so invasive they can just spread it all over um so you know tolerant species it's great that they're not succumbing to the disease but they're able to just carry it around and introduce it to other other species and other environments and then finally um we have the, the rarest of the reaction categories, and those are resistant species um, where you know, they don't get infected and or if they do, it just their body fights it off really quickly and, and kills the fungus. So like I said, this is really rare, except for a few exceptions, and that includes the genus Speleomantes, which are European cave salamanders. And this is really interesting. Um, they seem to have some like highly advanced skin defenses um, because in ex- when they've been experimentally infected, the BD clears up like in one to two weeks and in the wild, it's not even known to exist on individuals. So, but like I said, that's, that's really rare. Most species aren't going to react like that. Um, and then if kind of already isn't clear, BS... Um, only affects salamanders and so frogs and Sicilians, which are a, a gross group of amphibians. <laughs> <laughs> They're both resistant to BS. Um, and I don't even know, I couldn't find anything about any chytrid in Sicilians. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, most Sicilians are fossorial, so they're living underground and they're just rarely seen and rarely studied. Like mm-hmm. they don't even know exactly how many species there are. And so, I suspect that we just don't know enough about chytrid in them, so there's just nothing written about it. Yeah. So as Jonah has said before, uh, chytrid can be found worldwide. It's basically on every continent, except, of course, for Antarctica. There are no amphibians in Antarctica. But, um, yes, yeah, so anywhere you you see you find amphibians, um, chytrid uh, may be present. Um, so it's it's a global epidemic, you could say. It was in the 1970s that herpetologists first started um, noticing the declines in amphibian populations, but it wasn't until a couple decades later in the 1990s that they really put pieces together and recognized it as a as a global phenomenon. And at the time, they weren't sure, you know, they were working on what it was that was causing this. And um, eventually they settled on, on Kittred, as we've discussed before. Um, the discovery of BD and as well as BS. But a pretty astonishing number, more than 200 species are, are thought to have gone extinct since the 1970s due to chytrid. Um, so that's that's a big number. So I'll, I'll go through some regions um, of the world uh, where chytrid has been pretty well studied. In Australia, sorry, the Australian continent saw some of the earliest die-offs from chytrid, and several species have actually been missing in the past couple of decades, past one to three decades, um, just have not been seen and are presumed to be extinct, uh, most likely because of the chytrid. And a few more species, six more species, have experienced significant declines um, and are likely to become extinct in the immediate future. So it's got it's to the point where... where the herpetologists have acknowledged that that chytrid is is likely to, to wipe them out very soon. So in the United States, um, the mountain yellow-legged frog, which is found in California's Sierra Nevada mountains, experienced a mass die-off in 1979, followed by severe declines that basically led to their, well, not basically, it did lead to their extirpation by 1983, which extirpation means basically extinction in in a certain area. Um, 
And so this, you know, that's just three or four years. And that's an example of how quickly chytrid can just wipe out entire populations. Um, but before it was extirpated, individuals removed from the wild were removed from the wild and, you know, for captive breeding programs. But since, well, since then they've been reintroduced, but since BD has been discovered, it's been studied really well in mountain yellow-legged frogs. And actually studies of this species have really provided a better understanding of how epidemics of chytridiomycosis, how they work. And specifically, you know, one example of another finding from studying mountain yellow-legged frogs is that higher frog densities leads to more infection, which just seems intuitive. But, um, and this is the case in a lot of places, especially in Central America, where there's not only a lot of individual frog density, but a lot you know, high species diversity. And that's why species there have gone extinct. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but in the in the eastern United States, the lack of mass die-offs and local extirpations and even dramatic declines suggests that there may be some, you know, native strain of BD there that allows eastern species to coexist with it so they have some sort of resistance to it and they're used to you know living alongside it um but you know the the conclusions on this in the eastern united states are really mixed is basically what i found so um it's still a concern and you know because of the potential that BD, the potential, uh, you know, catastrophe that BD and BS can cause in the United States because we have such a high diversity of amphibian species. Um, in 2016, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually banned the import of over 200 salamander species, particularly to avoid, uh, particularly to avoid the introduction of um, BS because, you know, to our knowledge. North American species haven't been exposed to it, and so we have no clue the effect it would have on them. I also read that after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, banned these imports, they allowed salamanders that were already here to sort of be grandfathered in. So, you know, if if there were already salamanders here, they can still be traded and moved across state lines and everything. They just can't. Um, be brought into the United States, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we will be talking a little bit about how the pet trade has contributed to to the spread of um, these chytrid fungi as well a little bit later. As Jonah has mentioned already, Central America has high species di- diversity and density of amphibians. Um, and so it's the perfect environment for BD to spread, for chytrid to, to spread. And it has um, really decimated certain populations, um, especially the smaller populations. Um, so we know that how quickly it can drive an entire species to extinction. Um, for example, one site in Panama lost 41 of its species in a matter of four years between 2004 and 2008. Um, so that's extremely transmissible Um so Central America, of course, because of all those reasons, um, has been hit really hard by chytrid caused declines. I also read that it's the chytrid declines have happened so quickly and so obviously in Central America that, like, basically they've been able to map the way this epidemic, this epidemic chytrid wave moves on the landscape just because it's affected so many species so quickly there. Sticking with the same region of the world, um, on the island of Puerto Rico, which is where my people are from, um, <laughs> um, three endemic species, um, there are actually several endemic species on the island of Puerto Rico um, that are both ecologically and culturally important. But um, in the 1970s, three endemic species went extinct from Kintrid. And uh, Puerto Rico has dry seasons, so... Um, during the dry season, BD spreads more easily because, of course, during that season, frogs are aggregating in wet areas. So climate conditions can also affect the the transmission of BD and also cause 
frog populations to fluctuate. In Africa, BD is known to be present, um, but it hasn't been really well studied, so it's unknown, you know, the extent of the effect it's having on amphibian populations there. But there is one prominently known example of a mass die-off that was attributed to chytrid in the Kahansi Gorge of Tanzania. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a mass die-off of multiple species. And then, you know, after there was a mass die-off, there was a pretty steep declines in a lot of populations. And in particular, one species that was hit almost as hard as you could get hit was the endemic Kahansi spray toad, which is found only in the Kahansi Gorge. And I really want to do an endangered species episode on these. So mm-hmm. we'll talk more about them later at another time. But um, they became extinct in the wild following this chytrid die-off. And you know, since then, they've been bred in captivity and reintroduced to the gorge. But what, you know, we keep reiterating that this stuff happens hard and fast. Um, and without some of these, you know, captive populations, we'd have way more species that have gone extinct. Mm-hmm. And the Kansi spray toad is just one example of a, a success story. So moving on to Europe, uh, we've mentioned Europe a couple of times, especially in regards to BS. But um, for BD, the there's been high variability to the responses um, among species. So, of course, that makes management... Um, more difficult, uh, managing for the populations. And as we know, BS occurs in Europe, and this is where it's it affects uh, the salamander populations most. A well-known example of the fire salamanders in Belgium, 90% of the population died within six months in Belgium in 2014. And by a couple years later, 2016, the entire population was extirpated. So as Jonah ha- as Jonah just said, this happens very rapidly, very quickly. Yeah, and so in Europe, there's a couple species that actually seem to be tolerant carriers of BS, and these are the midwife toad and the alpine newt. So again, like we've already said, these fungi affect different species in different ways, and for who knows what reason the midwife toad and the alpine newt seem to be tolerant of it. And that means that they carry it and they're introducing it to susceptible species in their environment. And speaking of tolerance, we we mentioned the possibility of an endemic strain of BD in the US. And there's also an endemic strain possibility in Brazil, which may explain the lack of major population declines in that area and the and the low but steady prevalence of infection. Although Brazil did see one of the first mass die-offs in 1979. Um, this endemic strain stuff is really interesting to me. Um, and it'd be, it'd be interesting to find out more about, I guess, the difference between the endemic strains and the invasive strains. Yeah, there's a lot of detailed uh, genetic stuff that's being done and has been done with BD and currently BS. And it's way over my head. (laughs) (laughs) But they can basically genetically tell um, differences in it for some reason in the Eastern United States and Brazil. Well, I actually don't know if in these cases they have confirmed genetically if there's an endemic strain, Mm -hmm. but I think they're inferring that because BD exists there with these amphibian populations and there's not major die-offs, I think that they're coming to the conclusion that, okay, they're resistant to this somehow. And how are they resistant to it? Well, they've been living with it. Yeah. So they're used to it. It's not like a novel thing like in these other places. Right. So just like in Asia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the Asian salamanders. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. So then we have these very select few places that are actually chytrid free and of course they're islands so we have Papua New Guinea which the species here are you know closely related to Australian species there's probably even some of the same species so they can kind of you know model what 
the introduction of BD there would do based on what it's done to species in Australia. But then we have like the Seychelles Islands, which are beautiful, went there. <laughs> and 92 species, 90, not 92 species, yeah, right. 92% of the amphibian species there are endemic and they're not really closely related to you know, other mainland species in Africa because Seychelles are like way out off the east coast of Africa in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So, you know, they don't really have a way to model what the introduction of BD there would do. And, you know, that's a very high percentage of endemism, which I guess we should have said, we need to start like defining terms. Yeah, that's true. Just in case our listeners don't know, but endemic means that they're only found in that one spot. So you go to the Seychelles Islands, which are like a string of, I don't know, like between 150 and 200 islands. And 92% of the amphibian species there are found nowhere else. Sometimes they're only found on just one of the islands. And so, you know, if BD was introduced there, like they could go in faster than other populations just because their populations are so small on these little islands. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other kitchen free areas are like Fiji and the Solomon Islands and the same thing. Don't really know what would happen to them there other than that it's probably not going to be good. Yeah. So, Jonah, I'm going to let you talk about the pet trade because if I start talking about the pet trade, I'm just going to go off. (laughs) I have very strong feelings about it. Oh, yeah, me too. We we are definitely going to do like a whole episode on the international pet trade. But basically, we can pretty confidently blame the pet trade um, for the rise of this chytrid crisis. We have, so, you know, like I said before, there's, as an example, there's these Asian Asian salamander species that aren't affected by BS, but European salamander species are. So there's a lot of Asian salamander species that are in the pet trade, like all these really cool exotic newts and stuff. And they get brought around the world and, you know, they could be carrying BS in their skin, even though it's not affecting them. They get even though they're getting put in an aquarium, like that the way this happens, it's impossible to know exactly how it happens, but it's just small little things that can make a huge difference. You know, you have a, a newt in an aquarium and you clean out it's, you dump out the water when you're cleaning its tank and there's spores in that water and you basically just introduce them into the environment and then they can just spread from there. And so really all it takes is one, one event like that to release it to a new area and then it can just proliferate like we've we've learned in some of these species and areas and you know the same thing with bd and frogs um these are very heavily trafficked and traded species around the world for the pet trade and this is how bd and bs has spread from these regions where they coexist with certain species and then species where these fungi have been introduced have no way to combat the fungus and that's why they are so susceptible to it so you know it's pretty clear that the the pet trade is the reason that bd and bs has spread so rapidly in the past few decades but you know even though there's, there's all these international trade regulations it it's still being spread because it's it's almost impossible to detect, especially in a species that isn't showing clinical signs, like Asian newts that aren't affected by it, mm-hmm. you know. And the sheer volume of animals that are that are going through the oh, pet gosh. trade, it's it becomes almost impossible to to keep track of all yeah. of them. I mean, I'm I'm really ashamed to admit that I used to like be a herp keeper, which I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. So we'll save that for our, <laughs> our episode on it. But you go to these like expositions and even when I was doing it, I was disgusted with them because you go and there's vendors selling, you know, all sorts of species, including like ridiculous stuff like king cobras and, mm-hmm. and stuff. 
And some of them just have like mass amounts of animals in these tanks. And when you want one, you just reach in and grab one and put it in your container and take it. Yep. And when you go to one of those events, it's obvious how this happened so quickly and has just devastated amphibian populations because yeah, like you said, the volume is just, it's unbelievable and it's scary. Just thinking back, uh, what a fool I was, <laughs> but um, it's it's just unreal. Like actually, if, if you have a chance to go to one, just to observe, it's very eye-opening and it just sort of paints a, a different picture than, than what you imagine. Yeah. Um, but, and it's not even just that, even like Petco and stuff, PetSmart sells certain species like uh, the Oriental Firebelly Toad, which if people look that up, they've, I guarantee they've seen one of those species in a Petco or a PetSmart. Mm-hmm. And that species is actually thought to be one of the major um, whatever players in the transmission of BD around the world because they're so popular in the pet trade. And you know, I guess we could just get to this now one of the one of the hypotheses is that bd spread during the korean war um, and actually just earlier this year in may 2018 after doing a bunch of genetic stuff like i was talking about they traced the origins of bd to the korean peninsula which is where the oriental firebelly toad is from mm-hmm. but you know one train of thought is okay maybe during the korean war the fungi also was able to spread because you know, amphibians or even the spores were able to hitch rides on clothes and equipment and water bottles and stuff. And, you know, that's just another just another idea in addition to the pet trade, because there's no doubt that the pet trade caused this. Yeah. But I just think that's a really interesting thought that, you know, it could have been brought back after the Korean War. And one last thing, um, I did read this and this is really scary just to give you an idea of, you know, pet stores and places like Petco and PetSmart. There's this one study where the, a team like combed these pet stores in Belgium, the UK, the US, and Mexico, and they found frogs and toads infected with every strain of BD, um, which is, you know, that it's that it's basically ubiquitous, ubiquitous in pet stores, which is why scientists say, you know, this isn't going to get any better. It's it's really only going to get worse. Yeah. Speaking of it only getting worse, uh, I guess we'll we'll talk about what's being done um, in response to uh, the epidemic. Of course, as we've already alluded to, many research teams, laboratories, even museums around the world are working on mitigation and solutions for for chytrid fung- fung- fungus and its spread. Uh, we've already mentioned a couple of sort of immunization efforts. Uh, One of the biggest ones right now was developed at the Smithsonian National Zoo, and they developed a treatment using an antifungal compound called called itraconazole, and it's basically a microbial bath, um, and you just, you literally bathe the frogs um, in itraconazole. They've found through um, especially laboratory experiments that this is an effective way to cure an animal that's already infected. And this is mostly with BD, so um, with frogs. And as so that, that research began ex situ, so in laboratories. And when they found that that was successful, for the most part, they, they started testing the treatment um, in situ, in situ, in the wild, and one one good example is a, a study they did on Mallorca in the Mediterranean, where they used this antifungal treatment, the itraconazole, in combination with the disinfectant. Um, so they used the itraconazole on the animals, and they used the disinfectant um, on the water and habitat. And this combination was actually so successful that they believe that they've eliminated. Um, chytrid fungus from the island. And of course, this is a, a smaller area and often treatments that are done on islands can't exactly been be replicated on continents, but they are 
they are moving to the mainland of Spain to try uh, to try the same thing, and those results are still pending. Okay, and of course, these treatments are also being employed in captive populations where it's easier, of course, to treat the animals and their habitat because those are captive holdings. But of course, uh, exact dose um, depends on species, habitat, ecology, and other contingencies. And so it's not, it's not foolproof. And there are several problems with itraconazole. Firstly, uh, it's actually been found in, in certain clinical studies to be harmful to certain inv- individuals, causing problems with pig- pigmentation, problems with the epidermis, uh, the skin, and certain individuals have even um, died from, from the treatment. And they're tr- still trying to figure out why, why the treatment is doing that to them. And also many populations have been found to be easily reinfected even after treatment with the itraconazole, um, both in situ and ex situ, so both in the laboratories and in the wild. So as I said, it's not a foolproof solution. And um, of course, the usual monster is its head. It's expensive. Uh, So it's not exactly accessible. And more research is being done to find less expensive, more accessible alternatives um, so far, nothing has been found to be as effective as itraconazole, but of course, they're still they're still searching out there for more accessible alternatives. And of course, um, itraconazole has mostly been tested on frogs with BD because it's more widespread, of course, and we know more about it. And there has been less testing for BS um, for salamanders. So that's itraconazole, and that's um, that's more of a you know a responsive treatment. Researchers are also trying to find measures to prevent the spread in the wild, which of course, as we've already mentioned, is much more difficult to control than in laboratory conditions. But as for as for different ways we can get involved um, as naturalists, either professional or amateur, there are things we can also do to mitigate the spread of chytrid so that the the burden on responsive treatment and responsive research is lessened by um, just employing preventative methods. Um, so, for example, just being aware that uh, chytrid may be basically everywhere uh, you step in every puddle, every pond you step in. Um, so when you're out exploring or herping, you have to take precautions uh, to prevent spreading the fungus. This is just like what they're doing for white nose syndrome. You know, they warn you if you enter a cave, when you exit, you should disinfect your boots and your gear. Same thing now that we should do uh, to prevent the spread of chytrid. So just be aware that chytrid may be present and work on disinfecting your gear and boots. We've, we've, we mentioned the pet, pet trade, of course. Um <laughs> My suggestion would just be not to participate um, in the pet trade, especially when it comes to to herps. Uh, of course, we'll talk more about the pet trade in a separate episode. Um, but just be aware that um, you know Joan already described the conditions to you um, that this it proliferates and spreads really quickly um, in these kinds of conditions and expos. So just don't participate. If you do have amphibians at home, whether you're a collector or especially rehabbers, uh, make sure you're quarantining quarantining, um, new individuals, keep them separated, and just take the precautions not to to spread the disease from individual to individual or from population to population. Um, And those are just certain things that we can do as the public to not only to try to mitigate the spread, um, but also just to be aware of it, um, spread the word. Um, oh, that's catchy. Spread the word, not the disease. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, clever. I'm sure you didn't come up with that, though. I'm sure someone has that Yeah, somewhere. I'm sure, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I guess I don't know what else to say about mitigation. Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the stuff, most of the stuff that, is being done and can be done. I think you covered everything that we as just, you know, regular people can do. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it is um, up to these scientists and conservationists trying to, you know, help amphibian populations farther abroad. I like it. 
like we mentioned, we're fortunate that species here in the United States haven't bit, been hit super hard, but that doesn't mean that they can't be. And especially with, you know, the size of the pet trade, it, mm-hmm. it can happen so easily. Um, and so just continued monitoring of of these populations and the the prevalence of chytrid in the environment and in these populations is is super critical um there's actually you know we'll post some of our resources in the show notes but also i just wanted to say that the amphibian arc which you can is at amphibianarc.org they have a lot of really good resources about chytrid and just about amphibians in general and you can subscribe to their newsletter for free and they send out some really cool stuff about research and conservation efforts going on in the wild and in captivity. Um, but they have a lot of stuff about chytrid. And I mean, most of the international work being done on amphibians revolves around chytrid just because it's mm-hmm. such a, a large scale issue. Yeah, you can also find um, you can also find information on symptoms for Kittred, um, on that website, Amphibian Arc, and elsewhere. And if you're aware of the clinical signs, um, for example, like excessive shedding of skin, we've talked about that, discoloration. Um, actually, I have a list right here. Let me go over them because um, it's important to know these. Um, if abnormal behaviors, abnormal postures. If you see a nocturnal species suddenly becoming active during the day, um, if you see frogs having seizures, anorexia, things like that, um, if you see these sort of clinical signs, you know, while you're exploring or, or uh, you know, while you're out there and you see this, you can report it. Um, and that's important, too, um, not only being aware, but also if you encounter chytrid and it's obvious you've seen a population um, or even if it's questionable and you're like, oh, gosh, these frogs don't look right, you can report that. Um to your the state agency and yeah I don't I just wanted to I just want to make sure that everybody knows that there there are if you encounter this in the wild it's not just like oh that's a shame um, it's also important to to make sure that the right people know um, know yeah, about it because you could be the first person seeing this in an area I mean yeah. there's many times where this kind of stuff or discoveries like this have been made by just someone Mm -hmm. who was out on a walk or something. Um, So just be aware. And, you know, I think the best people to contact would be someone from like the state fish and wildlife Mm -hmm. rather than some other nobody where the information might not go farther, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And Um, you might be someone like cleaning up leaves in the park. Yeah, exactly. And and you might be tempted to you know call the local rehabilitation facility, and yeah. it's it's important that that facility connect you with the with the state agency um, because many facilities can not do anything. Um, they may not have a veterinarian who's able to treat um, the frogs. Um, they may not they they may not even be permitted legally to um, do anything about it. So it's um, yes, like Jonah said, it's important that you let the right people know. So make sure that you get in contact with the the State Fish and Wildlife Agency. So yeah. Anything else? Um, I think that's all the gloom and doom I have for me Besides today. Besides that we're all doomed yeah. <laughs> or they're all doomed. Yeah. Well, eventually we'll be all doomed. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's important to to recognize that um Kitrid is a huge threat on its own, just inherently. It's it's a catastrophic threat. But you also have to consider the the sort of perfect storm of threats that amphibians, all wildlife, but, you know, amphibians are especially sensitive um, to, such as climate change, uh, habitat reduction, habitat destruction, uh, pet trade, of course, we've mentioned, uh, poaching, just just a slew of threats that amphibians are faced with. So yeah, it's important to remember that that chytrid is not happening in a vacuum. Um, it's catastrophic in and of itself, but um, part of the reason we're responding so aggressively in terms of treatment and research um, is because this is not the only thing that's threatening amphibians. So it's, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but 
They're extra doomed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're extra doomed. I like that. I mean, I don't like that, but that's a good word. Pretty, pretty sad stuff. Yeah. So. Well, if you want to learn more about Kitchard, we'll post some of our resources in the show notes. Um, you could also check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Chronicles and check out our website, conservationchronicles.podbean.com. And you can download episodes there or download them wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to rate us or share the show with people. Yeah. Okay. Ta-ta. Bye.